Hey, Job. Hey, again. How's how's it how's it doing with the jobs? Oh, you know we're doing. Just roll out of bed a little bit ago, you know. Going for yeah. a walk at the park today. Cool. It's, it's gonna be pretty neat. I also finally watched a new TV show, and you did too. Yeah, I've kind of been doing that a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh. I'm I'm notorious for not washing anything, and uh, <laughs> but I sat down one night and uh, wanted some just kind of kick back and relax too, and then I just like put on Invincible, new uh, you know adaptation and it was on Prime Robert Kirkman comic, and I ended up there was three episodes and uh, I ended up uh, not kicking back and relaxing and sitting the fuck up and watching all three episodes. Yeah, I can see why after watching them. So In- Invincible is great. Um I I've never finished the whole thing cuz I'm pretty sure like Kirkman was simultaneously writing that and The Walking Dead for like a decade. Or so. Uh, Invincible ended before The Walking Dead ended, but like both of them ran for more than 150 issues each. And I'm pretty sure Invincible had some spinoffs and shit that aren't like necessary reading, but like I might look into anyway because I like Kirkman and I like his writing. But um, and apparently Invincible gets really good. I've I've read like 20 issues or so, uh, so I'm very pleased to note that it appears that this adaptation here while it does have some changes, because of course it will, is extremely faithful to what I read. And any changes it makes, it does so to be interesting to a degree. Like, it's not being different for the sake of being different. It's... it's. I think Kirkman had a quote somewhere where he was like, we're not going to change too much because we have an awesome story and we're going to tell the, the awesome story. Something like that. And I, I respect the fuck out of that, and, and I hope that it gets a season two, because I know that they're probably not going to cover that much in the eight episodes that they have for the season one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's... See how long that is. There's a lot of ground to cover. And like, it seems like it's taken off rather well, which is cool. Um, it's definitely, like... Would love to I keep hope it seeing more to of be this. A success. Yeah, definitely want to keep seeing more of this. Um, what what I think is like really interesting about like Invincible. Let, let, let's let's say like for some reason I, I like to I compare it to the boys a lot in my head for like talking about contrast of like it's a fair comparison because they're both takes on superheroes that are a tad unconventional right and you know i i would say borderline parody yeah like like the stories within them are still serious but it's it's a take that is like borderline parody of the more standard i suppose mcu and and dc right um what i find really interesting about invincible is it doesn't like do a full subversion like the no. boys does. 
Yeah, it's not like I, I feel like that's less the case in the Amazon The Boys show, which you should also watch is also really good. Yeah. Uh, but definitely in The Boys comic, Garth Ennis kind of just decided to take out all his frustration on being an employee of Marvel and DC over the years and decided to just like present superheroes as the worst assholes imaginable and take the piss with basically every character and trope that he could in the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really get the same vibe from Kirkman's story. Not at all. Um, it is a little of its time, though, um, to a degree. At least initially, I feel, because it was coming out around the same time as another comic I love, which is Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley's Ultimate Spider-Man, which uh, was a huge moment for comics. And a big reason of why Tom Holland is Spider-Man today, because it recontextualized Spider-Man as like a high schooler. Um, and a lot of that is here. It's it's a lot of the like, what if a high schooler was a superhero? And what problems would, would they have that that dealt with? I don't think it's any mistake that Invincible came out around the same time and kind of read like a parody of superhero stuff but for new millennium superhero shit. <clears throat> I still think it works without knowing that context, of course, but like, yeah, definitely it's, uh, it's pretty good. And, and I would suggest to anyone, I don't want to talk about spoilers cause yeah, crazy all. shit happens with that show. Like quickly. Yeah, I I, I would say, like, if you're not feeling that first episode, which I feel is possible, give it until the end. Yeah. And then see if you want to hit play on episode two. And my guess is that you will. Yeah. (laughs) Like, literally everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, yeah. There's a couple things just structurally that are strange to me. Like th- that big twist in that first episode is technically a post-credit scene, which is strange uh, because it's like a 10-minute long scene. Like yeah. I was really weirded out by the fact that we hit credits and then it just kept going. Uh, really unconventional. Mm-hmm. Especially for a show on a streaming service, which usually just like skips the credits Without your control, I usually stop it because, like, if there's a song playing on the end credits song, I want to listen to that. Usually, depending, I have this problem with Fargo a lot. They'll play like an interesting song, and, and I want to hear it. And like, Hulu is just like, "All right, time for the next episode, buddy." Three, two, one. I'm like, "Ah, oh, shit! Come on now." But anyway. Uh, you you have never read any of the comics, right? Sorry, what was that? You had, you never read any of the comics for Invincible, right? No, no, I have not. So, how's this playing for you then? Like, you're enjoying it? Oh, I'm absolutely loving it. I I um, one thing I was gonna get into about like when I when I'm comparing it to like something like the boys in my head, right? Um. I, I like one thing I do enjoy a lot about this show is it does have like that high subversion of of like your standard superhero trope, while at the same time still remaining like quite more human 
than the boys is, and still like it still has like that like slightly more like hopeful nature compared to what the boys has. Yeah, the boys I is incredibly see that. cynical, right? And that's intentional, right? right? Yeah. Um, a little less show in the Amazon live action series, but yeah. yeah. And uh, I I think uh, with something like that, turning that cynicism down just like a little bit, and still like making it like just a little bit more like realistic and like not complete out of bounds parody, kind of like I think makes it uh makes something like that very interesting. I I I like it a lot more as like a like. Like, just a relatable story. Um, Especially, there's a lot of, like, you know, like, coming-of-age themes and stuff like that happening in Invincible at the same time as, like, all the other crazy shit that's going on. Right. I think that's super cool. Um, I like the characters a lot. The voice cast in this show is unbelievable. Yeah, it's a a great list of names. Um, It's really impressive. J.K. Simmons is Omni-Man's goaded. Yeah, yeah, dude. It's it's probably like where the majority of the budget went, if I had yeah. to guess. Because the one thing I will say is it's an animated series, and I don't know. I wish this wasn't the case, but I know that that's a turnoff for many people. Many people are just like, I don't know, I don't like cartoons, which I think is dumb. But, you know, I can't force anybody to feel any specific way. But... I will say, like, it has the cast of, like, a modern, like, big-budget TV show, regardless of whether it's animated or not. You got Stephen Ewan, J.K. Simmons, Sandra Oh, Zazie Beetz, uh, Walton Goggins, Gillian Jacobs, like, uh, (laughs) Jason Manzoukas, who's really fucking good in this show. He's uh, the asshole superhero on the teenage team uh he's really good zachary quinto uh I th- mark hamill even shows up a couple of times it, it's it's real real good that's a good cast yeah absolutely it, it, it definitely helps contribute to like how how fucking great it is um yeah, I'm not going to go too much further into that about like what I th- what I think about it because I don't want to spoil anything. There's a lot that happens in it very quickly, um, but I, I do recommend like yeah, literally everybody just give it a watch. Literally I think, uh, yeah, dude. I think when it all is out, maybe we can talk about specifics. That sounds good. But I'll wait for that. I know some people wait for the whole series to be out before they watch it now with streaming services because streaming services differ with how they roll out their shows now, whether it's weekly. And and Amazon does this weird thing. They did it with The Boys Season 2 as well, where they do that three episodes up front and then go to weekly. It's kind of like doing both at the same time, and I'm not a huge fan of it because, like... If you're going to watch a show and, like, binge it, like, you're going to want to keep going after those three. So it's weird that they don't just release it all at once. But I get wanting to, like, space out the the hype, as it were, I suppose. And, mm-hmm. and like, you know, 
you know, the, the problem with releasing all the episodes of a show is that people talk about it for like a day or two and then nobody talks about it ever again sometimes. I think right. that was like one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why those Netflix Marvel shows didn't take off as much as they wanted them to. Possibly. Well, there's other reasons, though, too. But, <laughs> like, but anyway, yeah. Uh, watch that. It good. Hell. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ken and Job Show. That's Ken. Hey, hi. How's it going? Hello, everybody. I'm hey, hi. How it's going? Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Good. Good. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about Howl's Moving Castle. Yep. Usually... I feel uh, pretty excited to talk about a Miyazaki movie. This one, I'm just kind of like, it is all right, I guess. Yeah. This is all right, I guess. I, like, I, I don't know. I don't want to be down on it, because it is an all right movie. I still think it's good. Uh, I would hesitate giving it anything less than a 7 out of 10. And I think you can make an argument for it to be much higher than that. But it's just like, it's just like a comparatively speaking thing. You know, it's like, it, you can't help but be a little bit let down in that regard. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's his worst movie. Which, for him, is still a good movie. So yep. it's still worthwhile. It's still worth a watch from, like... Anyone who likes Miyazaki, but still, we'll get into that later. Yep. For now, um, I guess I'll kick this off. I know I, I talked about it a little bit last week, teased a little bit. Um, play Monster Hunter Rise. I know last time we recorded, it was right before the game came out. Now it's been out for about a week. And, man, man. It's, it's, it's really fucking good. I am completely dumbfounded on how they got this game to run the way it does and look the way it does on the Switch. And, uh... Well, cool. Yeah, it, it's probably, like, as far as, like... Like, you know, being like the, the way it runs, it's probably the best running and looking game on the Switch at the moment. I think that's um, the most impressive part of this whole thing to me is like, I don't know what it is, but Capcom always seems to push Nintendo to do better yeah. graphically with their consoles. Like, it seems to happen a lot. Um, I don't know. The Capcom's always been pretty good at pushing hardware. Um, the Monster Hunter team that worked on this game is the same one that did, like, pretty much all the 3DS games. Yeah. Um, Which look so, incredible for 3DS. Right. 
those also look great on 3ds they've also they've just been really good at like pushing hardware um to its limits and part of what helped them achieve it so well this time is uh for rise they decided to use the re engine yeah which is a good engine it's an incredible engine You constantly hear people at Capcom talk about how how amazing that engine is, and it seems like most likely from from like going forward, like most Capcom games are probably going to use the RE engine. Yeah, that that that'll be interesting to see, definitely. Because uh, I don't know what that you know you definitely think of it as the Resident Evil engine, but I guess technically it, it it's going to be used for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we'll see how that works out. I don't know. Uh, apparently, it's really flexible because you don't just have to make Resident Evil games, first-person horror, third-person horror shooters with it. You can also make, you know, Monster Hunter, which is a pretty different kind of thing, right there. <laughs> and Devil May Cry Five, actually. So, like, it's mm-hmm. a pretty diverse lineup of types of games. So. I don't know. I wouldn't even be surprised if Street Fighter Six uses that engine. I was about to suggest that that like it's most likely that we're gonna see that. That'd be One crazy. Big, I, don't know if, games. I don't know if I want the Street Fighter characters to look that realistic, but we'll see what they do. They could definitely have an art style with the RE engine still. That's not what I'm saying, but yeah, like Monster Hunter, for example, is incredibly stylized. Yeah, and runs in the RE engine. So like, I don't think. That's the thing, like, with most game engines, you don't have to have it looking hyper-realistic. It's just, like, especially if it's a really great open-ended engine, like the RE engine's supposed to be, you mm-hmm. can kind of go whatever direction you'd like. So you could still have, like, a way more stylized game. Um, which is cool. So, Monster Hunter Rise is, like, a lot of what you would expect from Monster Hunter, right? Your your gameplay beats all is all the same. It's always going to be the same, you know. Mm-hmm. Hit the monster with your weapon. Mm-hmm. Hit and kill monster <laughs> with weapon. Use parts of monster. Make new new stuff. Rinse and repeat. Right. Kill the animals and turn them into new stuff with with which you will further kill the animals with. Right. Kill the parent. Using the corpses of its children to kill it. Mm-hmm. Right? Who's with me? Hell yeah, dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, what Rise does do differently, though, um, a lot of it has to do with traversal. And um, their overall theme is entirely different. Monster Hunter's There's... always had like a tribal theme. Um, this time they went for like a more. I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe it. Japanese. It's like more like a classic Japanese theme, which I think is very interesting. I can tell that just from an outsider's yeah. perspective, not seeing a lot of. Well, there, I think a there's a word for it. I just keep said that I just can't remember what it is. Anime. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what. You know what I know about that game? Hmm. There's dogs in it. Yep. That's that's the next big thing. Um, 
They added Monster. You've always had your Palico, which is a which is a cat ally uh, that like comes with even combat and stuff, and you could use them to do all kinds of different shit. Right. Um, this game adds the Palamute, which is a dog, a big old doggo, and the dog enables traversal enhancements mostly. Um, you ride on your dog. And you could move dummy quick using that. Um, you could even drift. So that's really cool. Um, drift? You can doggy drift. You hit, the, you hit the L button. And, like, your dog starts, like, kind of, like, skidding. And then after a couple seconds... Just blast forward with like lightning speed, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's really, really fun. Uh, it's it's fun to do. Funny. And then the other major thing that they added it's called the wire bug. It's a skill you can use that basically just like grapples the air. And then you can hit it and, like, pull yourself up, pull yourself to the side. And that adds a lot bigger sense of verticality to Monster Hunter Rise. Along with the wire bug, they gave you the ability to run up walls. Which is really cool. Um, so what, you're, what you'll see a lot is you can, like... You'll see like a big, big hill, and you're like, "I can climb this," and you use the wire bug. You pull yourself up onto the hill, and you run up the hill. Cool. It's really fucking cool. I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, it, it's you'd also like propel yourself forward with it, so like you could jump off like a giant hill, and then just like grapple over to another hill, which is like type of movement that's never been in a Monster Hunter game before. So on top of that, you could that movement translates into combat as well. Each weapon has a couple of unique, like, wirebug-based abilities that you could use. Um, and some of them vary in, like, their impact. Um... But they're all really neat. But then you could also use those wire bugs to, like, go around monsters, pull yourself into a monster. And it just gives you a lot of variety in, like, what you could choose to do in combat. One of the cool things about Monster Hunter is seeing the people who are really good at the game and seeing all the absolutely absurd shit they can do. Yeah, I, that's definitely a big thing. Yeah, and so part of that... is uh just like super fucking cool they'll zip around like monster will go to attack them they'll zip around and then do like some kind of like crazy counterattack thing and knock the monster over i'm like i'll never be able to do that in my entire life that's neat <laughs> yeah i mean like it's 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 cool that they added a lot of mobility options for this game which has in my opinion kind of severely lacked them for most of its uh life span mm -hmm. 
I don't know. Like it, it definitely looking at Monster Hunter, it's like you're just kind of like running around the monster until an opening presents itself to you. At least yeah. looking at like world. Mm-hmm. And uh, this looks a lot more interesting to me specifically. It's a lot more interactive. Uh, yeah. And like those those movement abilities, like once you get used to how it works, it really really gives you like the the option to like just dance around the monster while hitting them you don't if you get good at it you really don't have to stop at any point which is super fucking awesome cool i i I really really like that a lot the uh weapons are all cool the new monsters are great there's a lot of like really really interesting monsters that do a bunch of different stuff the game's super fucking cool. I haven't gotten, like, super far into it yet. I just got out of low rank, which is, like, basically your intro section of the game. Everything is a lot ah, easier. scrub. Yeah, dude. <laughs> that's me. I'm a scrub. I mean, I don't know. I assume that's how it's going to be. That, that's a game you play for hours and hours and hours and hours. And that's a game at. you, like, like, to finish the main game, you usually have to dump about 50 hours into it. Sure. And then past that, I go way beyond that always. Um, <laughs> each Monster Hunter game, I'm usually putting about 500-ish hours into it. Damn. World, I put much more than that. The world had, like... The world had a lot of content. I, it and had, It'll be interesting to see if this one gets a lot of DLCs and updates as well. It will. It, it's... it's uh, I think it's, like, the third fastest-selling game on the Switch ever. It's so, selling a lot, and yeah. considering it's only on the Switch, that's really impressive. Well, the thing is, like, everybody has a fucking Switch, man. I guess like, so. Th- th- that's yeah. like, a lot of people were, like, were questioning why Rise was on the Switch um, when it was announced. Yeah. I think it makes perfect sense. Well, they gave an option for the other consoles, so... Yeah. Now there's the Switch one, but but instead of like approaching it like a side game, they approached it like the next main entry, mm-hmm. which is interesting. There's also like a history of it being on Nintendo handhelds anyway, so mm-hmm. I think it made sense. Yeah, it's I don't know. Just everybody has a Switch. I don't. I'll probably get one eventually. Yeah. I'm waiting to see if they uh. Come out with a better one. Yep, which uh, there's heavy rumors of that happening this year. That might be Nintendo's yeah. big announcement for the E3, actually, um, which we also just heard is going digital this year. Yeah. Um, yep. Nintendo will be there, and uh, they're they're most likely going to talk about that. Right. And I'm sure, and like I'm I'm starting to think maybe their their big premiere title to come out with that might be the Breath of the Wild sequel. Which would be cool. That would make a lot of sense, considering, like, they said they have news for it at some point this year. Yeah. Um, so that would make sense. It's a big E3 thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. It's just, like, it needs an iteration. It needs, like, a PS Plus. I'm sorry, not a PS Plus. A PS Pro kind of iteration to it, you know? Like, I don't think they should release any games that don't work on the normal Switch, but, like... There's lots of games that get released for it and ported to it that just fucking chug shit and mm-hmm. and just don't work very well because it's struggling to keep up 
with games that are released on PS4 and Xbox One, and now PS5 and Xbox, whatever the fucking new Xbox is called, Series that it just it can't. I, who cares? It it just it, the switch <laughs> the switch can't run these games. You can't right. release Resident Evil 8 on the Switch. It just won't work. You can't even release Resident Evil 7 on the Switch. Yeah, it won't And that work. came out in, like, 2015 or whatever. 17 or whatever. Uh, and that's kind of a problem. Because yeah. you run into the same problem that, like, the Wii had. Where, like... Like, there's just games that just don't come out for it, and you just, like, kind of have to also own one of the other ones. Yeah, which is what most people do, by the way. There's this really interesting thing that I found. Right. It's like a survey that, like, it's it's, it's upwards of, like, some 70% of uh, uh, Xbox and PlayStation owners also have a Switch. Right. Um, which is huge, because, like... Like, it just goes to show, like, if, if you release something on the Switch, you're still going to pull a large amount of the player base from those consoles, too. Very great. true. This, the Switch has just an absolutely giant player base. Yeah. Because of just the amount of people that own it. But I think it would be beneficial to Nintendo to have it be a contender as well with the other two. Yeah, or at least get it close enough that yeah. people like it, it's realistic that you can release a port of a game to that console. I think that's what Nintendo's looking at for sure. Um, I think it's finally starting to hit them that if they can rally some kind of third party market onto their system, because that's what really sells the Switch, by the way. Um, yeah, of course, the Nintendo games are great, but there is still a great amount of, like, indie and third-party games that all come out on the Switch, and they sell, like, hotcakes on that motherfucker. Yeah, that's that's a big deal for that thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just because of the, the, the prospect of portability. Um, so many, like, you know, most people play the Switch portable. The idea of being able to just pull that sucker out of its dock and sitting down somewhere and playing it's huge. That, that's it's, that's just the big pull of the console. So the more the more games you can get on that sucker, you know, the better. Mm-hmm. It's great. And so, you know, going forward with that, Nintendo's going to look at being able to get more games on the Switch, especially, like, after most likely after seeing, like, the success that Monster Hunter Rise is having. Going to go like, hmm, we can get, you know, bigger third-party titles like this on this sucker. I mean, after 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 World, Monster Hunter is huge now. I mean, it right. used to be that Monster Hunter was a pretty niche franchise. Now it's now it's you know Capcom's biggest franchise, which is just yeah. kind of really really fascinating. You know, it's, it's that pillar's pretty much been held by like Resident Evil and Street Fighter for the longest time, and uh, Monster Hunter World sold so well that like it that's that's the biggest shit now. World's their biggest selling game in yeah. their company's history, right? Right. Yep, okay. it's the best selling game they've ever had. Yeah. So Which is wild. Yeah, the story history that this company has. Yeah. yeah. It just goes to show how good that game is. And like Rise is similar in caliber, like very similar, because it, it runs basically the same except it has like more shit for you to do in it. Mm-hmm. So, like, people who like World are going to love Rise. So, all those same so, people are picking that game up. 
Sorry, if you hear background noises, it is my dog snoring. Aww. <laughs> Loudly. That's, that's content, baby. <laughs> I don't know if it'll get picked up on my mic or not, but she loud snore. But yeah, so people who are apprehensive about picking the game up, um, definitely, definitely grab it. It's uh, it's a little bit closer. There, there's some stuff in it that's a little bit closer to the older Monster Hunter games. Uh, Monster Hunter World kind of put like everything together. It's like one cohesive thing. Um, Monster Hunter Rise, like the previous entries, other than World, um, it has a separate village and hub. The hub is exclusively for multiplayer and not exclusively for multiplayer, but mostly for multiplayer. And the village is mostly for single player. Um, okay. But you can do you can do hub quests by yourself too if you want to play a game by yourself. But the biggest drop loss hunter is the multiplayer, usually. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. If I'm being honest, I think the I think the village. The village quest stuff isn't like something that's entirely useful. I don't I don't like content like in a multiplayer game, I don't like content that forces you to play single player. I can I don't kind think you of should have see to that. do that. Yeah, that's kinda I not I should the best. be able to do whatever I should be able to do everything in the game with my friends. And like doing the village quest unlock you some like useful stuff too. So like it's kinda weird that like the game just kind of goes like, yeah, this is a big multiplayer game. This is the main draw of this. But you have to do some things by yourself. Like, why? Why right. do I have to do that? It doesn't make any sense. This is how seamless the multiplayer is in this game. Like, I literally just hit a button and I'm like instantly in other people's lobbies. It's crazy. Because of the, the the Switch's terrible online infrastructure, I was fully expecting, like, taking forever to get into somebody else's games and shit. Nope. Hit hmm. a button and I'm in. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty fucking cool. But yeah, that, that's my only, like, the Village stuff's probably my primary complaint about Rise. I think, uh, out, like, outside of that, even though it's not, like, a huge deal, um, I still think that, uh, it's fucking incredible, and everybody should play it. If you liked, if you liked World, you'll love this game. If you thought World felt a little stiff, you will really like Rise, <laughs> because it's a lot less stiff. Cool. Yeah, that's it. I'll have to talk about it. I'll talk more about it later once I get into like the late game of that shit. All right. Uh, I also have been playing Capcom games because I've been playing Resident Evil a lot. Um, trying to beat all of them. I'm not gonna make it before Resident Evil Village comes out, but uh, we'll at least do the numbered entries before that. And then we'll start working on the shit ones that don't have numbers. <laughs> no, yeah. no numbers, only pain. But anyway, um, Resident Evil 5 is a game, I guess. 
I beat that last night. <laughs> it's a game, uh, I guess. I watched you beat it last night. Yeah, you did. You were in that Discord call. <laughs> but um, I think that game starts off better than it ends. Uh, and I, I don't know. That's kind of just a Resident Evil thing. That's not even a Resident Evil 5 thing. Like Usually the most interesting part of every Resident Evil game is the first area. Usually. There's a couple exceptions, but it's like, yeah, the mansion is more interesting than, like, the labs and and the other house in, like, RE1. The police station is a more interesting location than, like, the sewers and the labs. The city in RE3 is a more interesting location than, like, the sewers and the labs. <laughs> you, you get what I'm going with this. Like, they kind of just do that. And... I don't know. Five is no exception because, like, seeing like this little uh, village in "quote unquote" Africa. No, no, no more specifics than that. Just Africa uh, being populated by people trying to kill you uh, is creepy and a little more effective than what the game turns into towards the end, which is basically just. Uh, enemies with actual guns shooting at you. Mm-hmm. Weird cover mechanics for some reason. Yeah, in, like... in a in a game that plays like Resident Evil Four, which is I've never liked in this game. Uh, and then janky boss fights against uh, Wesker. <laughs> really janky boss fights mm-hmm. that um, I forgot how bad they were. Um, all I remembered was the good bits, which is like the cutscenes where like Wesker does a flip <laughs> or like or like growls at you and says "crass" or something. You know, uh, the, the cutscenes towards the end of that game are hilarious and, and a highlight of that game. But the actual boss fights against Wesker themselves are um, bad. Yeah, they're Real really bad. bad. They're really so, fucking bad, dude. So bad that like it probably brings what like the score of that game down a whole point for me. Yeah, like probably to a seven out of ten instead of an it's eight. It's like out the of 10. major climax of the game, and it's like kind of shit, right? Like, yeah, I'm not a big fan of boss fights that like basically just are independent gameplay of what uh, like usually happens in the game. You know what I mean? Like I think your final boss should make use of the mechanics you've been using the whole time. And that one kind of doesn't cuz like he just dodges all your bullets and you kind of just have to j- out jank him. You have to jank the jank boss and hit him and then get the jank to work before he gets the jank to work on you. And and he has so many instant kills, which, like, in a co-op game is super annoying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like, you know, twice as many chances as you could die. But anyway, um, all that being said, it's fine. I think RE5 gets simultaneously too much praise and too much hate. Um... There's a lot of people who say it's, like, shit and bad. And I don't agree. It's good. It's a fine game. 
It takes RE4, which is the best game ever made, and makes it co-op. So that's pretty fucking cool. I, it could have been utilized better, sure. Like, nothing in it is as memorable as stuff from RE4. But that's a tall order. That's a real tall order. Yeah. And there's still memorable bits, and but there's also terrible bits. I don't think it's anything like RE0, though. RE0 is just kind of boring, and that's its biggest fault. At least I remember playing RE5. (laughs) Now, here's the problem. I'm sure you've counted before, Josby. Yeah. And have have noticed that the number six comes after the number five. Correct. And uh, I noticed (laughs) that just now. That's very good. I'm glad you did that. The next one that we are playing is Resident Evil 6. Correct. That would be, in fact, uh, correct. That blows! (laughs) I I, I don't know. I just... I... Not good good at all. I don't know why this has happened. I, I feel like this will be the third time I've played through the campaigns of RE6 I think or maybe just second for some of them I don't know the Leon campaign this will definitely be the third time I've played through the whole thing um I don't know maybe I just like hurting myself I, you know, it sounds fun from the outset saying like hey let's play all the Resident Evil games before 8 comes out but then, like, six is four games long. Yeah. And four shorter games. But yeah, four uh, games. I, I guess. I don't know. It feels about as long as, like, the, the campaign. Like, I don't know. I guess, like, it's probably, like, two Resident Evil 5s long, I'd say. Yeah. If that makes any sense. But it feels longer just because it's Resident Evil 6. Um, I don't know. Whatever. I'll bitch about that next week. Timestamp the video. Genhart promises he will bitch about thing later. I'm sure that's never happened before. (laughs) Nah, not even once. (laughs) On a positive note, I've been playing Spyro 2. That's a good game. I'm kind of mad that I... You know, I, I was a kid that had an N64 and not a PS1. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I do still have a lot of good memories of great platformers, but I overlooked the Spyro games when I was a kid. And they're pretty good. I've been playing that re... re uh, the fuck is the word? It's not remastered. It's something stupid. Um... No, I forget. Spyro Reignited. That's okay. it. That's it. Yeah. It's a Reignited trilogy. That's right. Right. Okay, so I beat, like, Spyro 1 last year, and I had an alright time, but Spyro 1 had some annoying level design contrivances and some overly difficult bits. Spyro 2 is much better, uh, in my opinion. Um, I don't ever feel like I'm lost in the levels. I don't ever feel like there's a one gem that I can't find. Like, it's usually pretty easy to find what I missed in that game. 
And I don't feel like there's any overly difficult bits. Um, that could have been just because I got over the difficulty curve of learning how to control Spyro in Spyro mm-hmm. 1. I know that is a lot of it. But I genuinely think just Spyro 2 is just a better game as a whole so far. Um, it's, it's pretty good. And I can definitely tell, although I haven't played the PS1 original, I've seen people play the PS1 original, and this is maybe one of the best remakes of all time. Just uh, uh, from a purely visual standpoint, what they did with that Spyro trilogy remaster is fucking incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, It looks fucking amazing. And the character redesigns are so great. Characters have so much expressions to them now that they're not uh, reduced to being polygon nightmares. Uh, And they really took a lot of creative license with uh, designing the characters that uh, is pretty interesting. Like, for example, there's a level in the original with seagulls in them that you talk to, and they just look like big seagulls. Or pelicans, I should say. I think pelicans. Uh... But in the remaster, the level has, like, a war theme. So they are redesigned to be more anthropomorphic, like, humanoid, but still pelicans. But they also have, like, army gear and combat helmets on and shit. Mm -hmm. And the design is great. Like, they didn't have to go that extra mile. They could have just crapped out. And, and, like, went the easy way out. But, you know, they they really decided to go for it. Uh, <laughs> like, in Spyro 1, all the dragons you rescue look the same. Yep. In the remake, they all have a unique design. And you only see them for, like, t- two seconds each. And that's crazy to me. Because that's so much work that went into designing like a hundred different dragons that you don't even see that much. That's crazy, but that's a, that's a great amount of detail and, and work and craft that went into that. And I'm pretty excited to keep playing it and play the third one as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm having a great time, uh, except for the trolley. Fuck that trolley. That trolley sucks. That part sucks. You, the real ones know what I'm talking about. The ones that have played Spyro 2. You know what I'm talking about. Fuck that trolley. I don't even remember what you're talking about. It's been <laughs> too fucking long since I played that game. Holy shit. It's a, it's a, it's basically like a minecart segment where mm. all you can do is like stay in the cart, jump, uh, shoot uh, a blast right in front of you, or switch lanes and you have to collect all these items and not fuck up once and get hit. And if you fuck up and get hit, it immediately brings you all the way back and puts you in a conversation with uh, the fucking Pelican guy that I was just talking about. And he says, trouble with the trolley, eh? And then he tells you how to control it. And like, okay, sure, if you fuck it up once, that makes sense. But then he does it every time you fuck up. And just the nature of its difficulty means that, like, I was hearing him say, trouble with the trolley, eh, for like a half hour straight. Uh, 
That game seems weird as far as it thinks difficulty is concerned at all. Because, mm-hmm. like, um, when you talk to NPCs and they give you, like, a task to do to get, like, an orb or, or whatever it may be, it usually pops up, at least in the remaster, it does, uh, an amount of difficulty that this task will be between one and five stars. And, like, just don't pay attention to that. Because it's nonsense. I've had ones that said they were three-star difficulty that were, like, annoying as fuck. And then I've had ones that were five-star difficulty that I was just like, why was that hard? What was hard about that? Why did they say that was five stars? That was easy. I did it first try. What? I I do realize these games are kind of skewed to be, like, for children, but, yeah. like, they're still really enjoyable and fun to play as an adult. And there's the nostalgic factor there. So, honestly, you could probably make an argument that there's more adults playing the Spyro remaster because it's a remake of a 90s game than there are kids playing it, for sure. I could probably make that argument. I would guarantee that. I would 100% guarantee that. <laughs> it's all a nostalgia game, man. The kids aren't playing Spyro. They're playing fucking Fortnite. But anyway, <laughs> like... uh it's just it's just kind of strange to me that like they don't like who tested this and said yeah that feels like five star difficulty when it's just like the easiest thing. But anyway, that's a good game. Hell and, yeah, dude. Uh, beyond that, I haven't been playing much. Uh, continuing to watch Fargo. Great show. I know that you never watch shows, Justin. You, right. you alluded to that in the intro. Bro, watch Fargo if you get a chance. Fargo's good. I'll do that after I watch The Boys and Watchmen and WandaVision. Jesus Christ. And True Detective Season 1. Oh, God. Nah, keep going. Just name like 50 shows. Um, I'm gonna watch The Sopranos again. <laughs> Probably before I do any of that. That's a good decision. That's fine. That's a good decision. I, I can't blame you for that one. No, well, my girlfriend's never seen The Sopranos, so we're gonna. Oh shit. We're gonna watch it together. I think. I want to rewatch The Sopranos as well because I've never actually went all the way through like a normal person. I've only watched it like in bits and pieces. Tan, like you know. I, I I don't know. I need to watch it like all the way through like a normal person would watch The Sopranos. Oh yeah, dude. I know the relevant plot bits. I know who lives or dies. But like... I don't know. I can't say I saw it in any order that it was intended to be seen in. Because I like kind of just watched it when my dad was watching it. And when I should not have been watching it because I was young. But oh well... Look at me now. Nothing happened negatively because I watched violent media as a child. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. <laughs> nah, I heard nothing. Nothing wrong. You're fine. I just hit people with my car occasionally, occasionally. And I think that's I think that's excusable. Once every like ten years or so. <laughs> um, Fargo season one. And Fargo Season 2 are both, like, absolute masterpieces. Some of the best television I've ever watched. Although they are very different from each other. 
Um, I just started season three, and um, it's not nearly as good. There are, like, I'm gonna keep watching it. It's not like bad. I I I, I do want to say that, but there's definitely like a dip in interest and quality for me. I think, uh, which I will use. To transition into talking about Howl's Moving Castle. <laughs> In no way is it bad. In no way. But in a very real way, it is not as good as literally anything else he's ever made. Damn. It's true, though. Do you agree? Yeah. I think that's I think that's where I'm gonna land. Like it's now that's once again it's not saying that it's bad. No, not at all. No, not even close. <laughs> but just, something uh, has to be at the bottom of the list, and I think it's this. I I, I mean I haven't seen Ponyo yet. That's next week, but I think it's this. Would you agree that it's worse than well, Porco's at the bottom of the list right now? Yeah, I, I guess we're just gonna just place think, it now. I mean, usually we do that at the end because it's more of a thought, but I don't have a lot of thoughts about this one. I think it's worse than Porco. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I. Yeah, Porco is more interesting to me, I'd say. Porco has better characters. And it's more consistent overall than Howl's Moving Castle. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. The characters are more interesting. Um, the action's more fun. There's more going on. I'll, I'll just come on right away and just say that, like, one of the big problems I have with House Moving Castle is the movie, like, although it does, like, move at a relatively consistent pace, it's still, like, doesn't feel like an awful lot is happening until about an hour in. Yeah, it's got a weird pace. Um, it feels like it meanders a bit too much. And, like, usually, like, Miyazaki and Ghibli, uh, in general, are paced really immaculately well. And, like, even when the movie is just more of, like, a vibe and less plot, it's still paced really good. Like, you could argue that more stuff happens in Howl's Moving Castle than, like, My Neighbor Totoro, for instance. But there was at no point where I was, like, wondering when something was going to happen in in My Neighbor Totoro. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. It kind of just trucked along at a pretty great pace. And this one has moments of lull where I'm just kind of like, I don't know. It's not entirely uninteresting, that lull, but like, you know. The rising action is so good to only be let down by like, just, I don't know. Just, I guess we're just going to hang out at Hal's castle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like, know. It's hard. It's hard to put into words why it, it doesn't work. 
in it relation to the bad. other ones working. That might not be too bad if the characters were like fantastic, but they're not. Um, and it might be like the core issue of this film more than I think about it. The characters in this film just are nowhere near as fascinating as like even like for example Totoro. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I was genuinely concerned when, like, that the little sister went missing, you know? Yeah. And that's the biggest trick a movie can pull, is making you actually feel concerned and invested in characters that, like, you know, in a movie like this are gonna be fine by the end. Right. And I I was not really invested in much that was happening in Howl's Moving Castle. Um... But man, is it fucking pretty! I, I, I God, know. yeah, the movie's fucking gorgeous. <laughs> Holy shit, dude! That's its big plus to me, and and why I had to hesitate when I was thinking about Porco. But I do think Porco's better because, like, God, the, the fucking design of the moving castle itself is so fucking cool. Yeah, and the design of the world, and but that's kind of like every. Miyazaki movie is immaculately designed and pretty to look at, so I don't think that's enough mm-hmm. for it to be truly like a ten out of ten or anything. That it just looks pretty, which like it sucks to say that. I do appreciate yeah. its looks, but right. it's lacking in other areas. I'd say. Yeah, I think uh, this movie has a truly awful trope in it, which is like sort of the entire basis for the plot which is like man saves woman once now she's in love with him because let's be fair here um, uh-huh. at no no point other than I guess that part does Hal do anything to give our main character a reason to fall in love with him N- uh, no he's generally kind of a piece asshole. of shit yeah, yeah. he's generally like a weird like fucking like just obtuse piece of shit to her most of the film mm-hmm. and like for some reason she's in love with him anyway it doesn't make any real sense um just sort of like serves that to move the plot forward i guess but it doesn't it never comes off as natural um which is like weird because usually that's not a problem that any Miyazaki film has everything always feels very natural yeah, and it, it, this movie doesn't have that. I I really didn't feel their relationship worked. Um, I don't know. Like, we're listening to the English dub, but I mean, I think that they did the best that they could. Like oh, as absolutely. always, these dubs the are really great. good. So I don't know if there's. Great. I don't know if the voice cast for the original had better like chemistry or not but like i just don't think the story itself services that yeah, relationship I, working I, in any way i don't way. think it, matter, it matters to his voicing who yeah like that, yeah. that that's a script issue that's not a that's not an acting issue the acting is not the problem in this I movie. I felt more of a connection <laughs> between like your main character and the other people that live at Howl's castle like there was more of a connection and a relationship, not a romantic one, just like character relationship uh, between the other denizens of the castle than there was even with Howell. Cause like you want to portray him as mysterious and weird because he's like an eccentric weirdo magician man. 
and I get yeah. that, but that kind of like robs him of like any positive qualities, right? Uh, because you well, know, well, just, just once again, just the reason I think it's such an awful trope is just like the only positive quality he had, like to the point where where Sophie's in the castle and, and the and the you know the queen there is like, oh, you're in love with Hal, is that he saved her once. Yeah, and there's That's like it. the added implication that like Hal was somebody who was in a relationship with the uh, the villain of this movie. I guess a kind of, sort of. I don't know. Miyazaki never likes to have a straight up villain. Um, no, never. The Witch of the Wastes, and and then it's like implied that like Hal at some point was like lol bye bitch and like broke her heart, and now she's like obsessed with him, and it's like. It's presented in a super toxic way later because she like literally steals his heart and is yeah. like, no, you don't deserve it, Sophie. He's, you know, it's mine. And like Howell doesn't have any agency in this decision in, in any way. He's kind of just dismissive of the existence of his ex, which I don't like a lot, really. Yeah, um, it paints him as is a bit of a. A bit of a creep and a bit of a asshole and 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 there's this scene um that like just kind of just made me hate him where like sophie cleaned his room or his bathroom or whatever mm-hmm. and and like fucked with the potions or whatever and then like his hair isn't blonde anymore and he like gets really like angry about it and says what's the point of living if i can't be beautiful and then sulks and like almost destroys the entire castle because he's emo. Right. And, and it's there's... just like, oh, he's in one of his moods. He just needs to get out of his mood. And like, even Sophie is like, yeah, he's being an, an idiot. He needs to snap out of it, lol. But yeah, like, and like... then she still loves him. I don't. <laughs> like. It doesn't make any real sense. Um, you can have a layered character. Like, you can have a relationship be not perfect because no relationship really is ever. Like, you know, people have arguments, people have disagreements, but, like, you could still, like, like you need to show us positive qualities of this character for us to believe that they can be together and and for us to believe that this is a relationship we as the audience should care about. Yeah, I don't think it does that at any point in this movie. It tries a couple times, but like I don't think it's anything significant. It does, right? It does. Okay, hear me out here. Okay, it does the thing that the live action Beauty and the Beast movie does, <sighs> right? I Where, refuse like, to watch that. So go ahead and like, tell me what you mean. Okay, well he's just like an asshole to her the whole time, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I understand that. Sure. Like it's it's the same thing. We're like, no, it's a it, good example. Sure, I got yeah. what you mean. Yeah, it is similar to the Beauty and the Beast thing, right? He Especially is a huge asshole to her, but then like, she sees the side of him that he doesn't let anyone see because he's like a beast but the, or whatever. But, but the problem is, right? Like, <laughs> in the live Beauty action, the it's beast. not done as well as the cartoon, probably. Right. And if you look at the cartoon, right? Let's let's, let's flip that back. Right. Mm-hmm. If you look at the cartoon, right, um, there's like plenty of moments in that film where he shows the positive quality and like spends like real time with her. 
and like does a bunch of nice shit for her and shit and like that doesn't happen in in this or or the live action Beauty and the Beast so like that doesn't happen once I don't know he helped her cook once that's cool great good job Hal you fucking did it buddy uh, I had no interest in watching the live action Beauty and the Beast but now I have like negative interest in watching the live action Beauty and the Beast dude it's so shitty great oh my god I feel like that's like the entire point of the movie and if you fuck that up you fucked it up irreparably right like if if I'm to believe that she falls in love with the beast and breaks the spell, you need to not present him as just an asshole. Right. That's like, the same problem that this fucking movie has, man. Yeah. It's yeah. the same problem. Right. I I completely agree. Like she does all like Sophie does all of this shit for him. She cleans his fucking house, which is a fucking mess, dude. Mm-hmm. That's hours worth of work. She she puts in some fucking worky work for him, right? Yeah. She fucking like she does all kinds of great shit for him. She's helping him become a bit of a better person, shit. And what does he do? He throws a pissy fit because his hair changed color and he floods He's the place like, with slime. I'm not hot anymore. Ugh. Oh no, my hair isn't bleached blonde like I'm David Bowie. David Bowie should have voiced Howl, by the way. That would have been fun and that would have been awesome. would have fit better than Christian Bale. I, I just I kept picturing him as Bowie like the whole time, but like not even in a positive way, but like in a way that reminded me of like. The movie Labyrinth, where David Bowie is the villain of that movie. <laughs> but, <it's> like, <laughs> but, like, that's kind of, like, weirdly how Hal is portrayed a lot of the way. Like, he's portrayed as overly mysterious and overly creepy when you're supposed to sympathize with him. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then very, very suddenly, okay? Uh-huh. This is something I noticed that I didn't for some reason I didn't realize how fucking absolutely jarring this shit is until I saw this right now in front of my face. This is why I play this film on me while we're doing the episodes, by the sure, way. Sure, yeah. From the when when the whole like mid climax of the movie happens with like the plane chase and everything like that. Yes. And Sophie like crash lands the plane into the castle and shit. Yeah, right. Hal wakes up that next day. And it's just a completely different fucking person. Just on a dime, bro. He shows up. He's super fucking happy. He's being really nice to everybody. He has a good old jolly laugh with them. Says their family is getting bigger and all this shit. Mm-hmm. Why? What motivated him to change? What did it? I I mean, the movie... Nothing. Presents... Nothing. No, no, no. Get Nothing happened. I agree. But the movie kind of presents... <laughs> uh, his mood swings is kind of a result of him like uh becoming a demon i guess like wouldn't it get it's, worse it's not explained very well <laughs> but um, wouldn't it get worse and not better though right? yeah no i agree i i'm just saying in general the movie has this thing where like yeah how the person is nice but when he becomes a beast you know, I, I guess it's kind of like Beauty and the Beast in a, in a way where he's like, you know, he's an asshole when he's the beast. But deep down inside, he's nice. And the way that Miyazaki 
I guess, decided to show that is, like, his monstrous form that he uses to, like, do battle and, and fly around and stuff actually causes him physical and psychological harm to the point where there's that one scene where he's, like, a growling monster until Sophie, like, talks to him. He becomes uh, Christian Bale practicing his Batman voice for Batman Begins, yeah. which will come out a year later. Oh, man. I think it came out like, the same year, but he <laughs> oh, probably recorded this. He probably recorded this before. Yeah, um, yeah the dub came out in 2005. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> that was so funny. It took me right out of the movie because it's Christian Bale, and I love Christian Bale, and he usually is a great actor, but, like, you know, his Batman voice is what it is. And just hearing it in this context where he's just like, get away, Sophie. It's like, I don't like, like come on, man. You can't be doing the bail man voice. <laughs> Fucking get out of here. I don't know. I feel like we've just bitched about Hal for like 20 minutes. But, um. I mean, like, it's his castle. It's his movie. It's you know? his movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are. What are things we like about this movie? All right. Um, the rest of the cast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're nearly as memorable as like other Ghibli characters, but like, no, not even close, but the like, they're still fun. The main character is interesting because she is cursed to be old. And then I like her much more as an old woman than as young Sophie. I'll say that straight up. I think that like, she's basically a different character when she's old. Basically, yeah. um, and that old character is much more fun because she's a lot more sassy and she's a lot more like opinionated and, and cunning. Yeah, uh, like when she turns into the young version of herself, she's kind of just like, oh, how I love you so much. But when she's like the old woman, she's kind of just like doesn't take any shit. And I love it. It's great. Um, her interactions with another well, character we're gonna talk about the best character in this film, Calcifer. Yeah, um, dude, he's the best. Fucking those interactions, especially like when she first arrives to the castle and everything, are fucking great. Yeah, Calcifer is also this sassy like, uh, hey, I'm I'm big scary demon fire guy. Ooh, and she's like, shut up, and like puts a pot <laughs> on him. It's like. <laughs> Great. Yeah. He's cool. He's like the fire that powers the castle, but he's presented as like actually just fire with yeah. like a face on it. And um it's great. It's one of my favorite nightmare visuals in any Miyazaki film is when he like when Howl's making eggs and he like feeds the eggshells to Calcifer. Yeah. And he like eats them, but he's a fire, but like so it's a fire at, with a mouth chewing the eggs shells. And it's just like <laughs> one of the most like out of context without having seen anything from this movie. You'd be like, what the fuck am I looking at? <laughs> He's great. Uh, the little kid is great. Uh, Markle. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why he's there. That is never explained. Um but I don't know. It's a little kid that works for Howl. I don't. It's not like Howl's his dad. Yeah. He yeah. just like works for him. 
but she's like, apprentice. I guess. Yeah, that's what he says, like in the big, in like the early part of the film. But I don't think he. I don't know. And he has that like disguise to appear as an old man when he like yeah. talks to like the public. Because I guess like Howell is like a business, even though he doesn't seem to be present at his business for most of the customers in this movie. Uh, I, I guess it's like a business where people go to to get magic done? Question mark. It's not no. very well explained because no, like. It, I mean, I think he has, like, different aliases that he practices business under because in the beginning of the movie, they're talking about Howl as, like, a evil figure in the public eye. Like, the public thinks that he, like, kidnaps girls and steals them away, which I, I guess is kind of true. But, but, but like... <laughs> although, uh, Sophie came there of her own free will, but, like... Yeah. I don't know. Um, what do you think of the the Witch of the Waste? I'm annoyed by that character. I think she's boring. I think she's, like, that this is, that the supporting characters that are great <laughs> are Casper, the kid, and the dog, right? Oh, the dog, hell yeah. Dog's great. I like he the just, dog. Like, he doesn't even bark, he just coughs. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, but, Heen. Heen the dog. <laughs> yes, Heen. That, that he first rolled up, and then yeah. and then Sophie was like, "Is that you, Hal?" And he just goes, <laughs> "I'm like, oh my god, I love this dog." <laughs> no, I love the reveal that that's not Hal the whole time. Like that's yeah. great. That's a great bit where like she she just assumes it's Hal when she goes on Hal's bequest to talk to, I guess like the head of magic or whatever her role yeah, is. Yeah, she's the queen. Madam Solomon. Yeah, she's the queen. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Of magic or like of the country that we're in? I don't know. Yeah. It's not, very, it's not abundantly clear. Nope. <laughs> like a lot of things in this film is. It's not as... I think that's another issue. It's just like this isn't as well, as well fleshed out. I don't have this problem world. with other Miyazaki movies. Like... God, we watched Spirited Away last week, right? Yeah, like, I really didn't have that talk problem about with that, and that movie's weird as shit. You want to talk about a fleshed-out-ass world in that movie? Every, you know every single, like, you know the way the world interacts? What, what like, the the main, like, thing, function that's going on within the town you're in? You know what biz, what services they provide? You know exactly what the head of the place does, what her motivations are. You know the absolute attitudes and, like, personification of every single character in it. And it's about the same length as Howl's Moving Castle. So I don't know what the fucking excuse is. Yeah, and even another movie that deals with magic specifically, Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, explains to you pretty well that, like, witches exist, and when they're such and such age, they go to a town to be their witch and, and do stuff for them. And that's all explained in, like, the opening five minutes. And it's like, got it. Good. I don't need... Like, I don't have any deep questions about magic at that point. It's just, like, it exists, and she isn't, like, the best witch, but, like, who really is the best at anything they do? It's fine. Like, you're not gonna be the Michael Jordan of witches. You could just be a witch. That's fine. That movie's great for that kind of message. Yeah. Um, right. This... 
doesn't really explain how the world it exists in works right very well and it we makes it no hard to engage idea. with it um right but yeah i just i i like the bit where she thinks hal has infiltrated as the dog but then the dog is actually working for solomon it's her dog but then the dog like goes with them instead like once uh, when Sophie has like stands up to Solomon, dog's like, yeah, I like her, and then just like leaves yeah. with Sophie. I guess it's kind of similar to like the baby that gets turned into a mouse in Spirited Away. Yeah, it's kind of just like there's a lot of yeah. similarities. Just you know, picking up people along the way, but mm-hmm. then like yeah, they don't have any like core great interactions that cause like that mm-hmm. to maybe happen. Oh, I'll tell you what. Um, th- so there's a character in this movie that got ruined by the end for me. Um, and I was prepared before the last, like, literal two minutes of the movie to say that this was my favorite character in the movie. But my favorite character in the movie is probably Calcifer now. Yeah. Uh, the Scarecrow, Turniphead, yeah. is great mm-hmm. until it is revealed what's going on with him. Then I didn't like it anymore. <laughs> it was so that was real fucking dumb, right? Yeah. So like, even like the reveal of who he is at the end is cool, but like it's so like just kind of shoo shoo off. It's like really really odd. I don't she, like, like his motivations. Uh, okay, so his whole deal is he's a scarecrow with a turnip for a head, and he can move. And he yeah. helps Sophie throughout the whole movie and is nice to her. And at the end of the movie, she kisses him and he turns into Prince Justin, who it is casually mentioned in like a single line of dialogue earlier in the movie that the kingdom is missing its prince. And this is why war is happening. It's not explained mm-hmm. very well outside of those two basic facts. Uh... And he is like, yay, I had to have a kiss from someone I love to turn back into Turnip Head. Like, turn turn back into a human from being Turnip Head. And, uh... And, and, but, but Sophie isn't in love with the Scarecrow, she's in love with Howl. And doesn't go with him. But that doesn't mean I think she should be with Prince Justin... Because I, I don't like that this trope is in the movie. <laughs> of, yep. Like the princess and the frog kind of shit. Where yep, it's, it's exactly what it was. It's it's kind of like, I think it's complicated by the fact that your character is basically being set up to be in a relationship with another person. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of weird. It doesn't fit very well. And it's kind of just presented as a joke, like, haha, looks like your true love is in love with somebody else, bitch. Go back home and fap, you idiot, lol. And, and then he just, like, leaves. I, I, I don't know. Or it's, like, suggested that he's like, yes, I should go tell my king to stop killing people. As if, as if it was that easy to stop all war. Well, the, the entire point of that war is, like, I guess... Was that th- th- that prince was missing, and then the country was accusing the other country of like capturing him or whatever? It's a real easy solution, though, if that is indeed what's implied. And I have some gripes with that that deal with um, 
some true world shit that I'll get to in a bit here, which mm-hmm. I guess I'll start going through that stuff now. This is the ninth yeah. film from Miyazaki, released in Japan in 2004, dubbed into English by Walt Disney Pictures 2005. It's an adaptation of a 1986 British fantasy novel of the same name. I didn't know that until looking this up. Uh, usually it, it's either like a Japanese work that he adapts or he kind of just does his own thing. So that was interesting to me that like I could probably go read the Howl's Moving Castle book if I wanted to, but I don't know if I want to. It's written nope. by uh, Diana Wynne-Jones. Uh, the novel spawned a few sequels. There's Castle in the Air and House of Many Ways. Uh, though these do revolve around different characters. They just happen to same this, share the same universe. Like Howl and Sophie show up, I think. But like it's about other characters in this big fantasy universe. Um, so according to the producer, Toshio Suzuki, uh, Miyazaki was inspired to adapt the novel after reading it and being struck by the idea of a castle moving around the countryside. In the novel, it's never really explained how the castle moves from location to location. Uh, And that's the question Miyazaki sought to answer. Uh, So that led to the design of Howl's Castle as this walking, chaotic behemoth, uh, which Mm -hmm. is not a design that's in the novel. his, His castle is presented more as, like, a typical fantasy setting wizard's castle, like, dark up a big slope... In, in the night with the lightning happening. It's got like a big spire, you know? Like a typical yeah. wizard's castle. Um, instead, Miyazaki got a little more creative with it, which is, is, is cool, is a good idea. That's, tip, that, that's what Miyazaki does, right? Yeah. He's just like, he doesn't want that shit to be typical. He wants it to be fucking weird, which is great. Right. That's what I love about him. Perhaps because of the complexity of the castle's design, uh, it's usually animated with CGI as opposed to the more traditional 2D animation, which makes sense because asking uh, people to draw that thing uh, that much would probably make people go insane. It's 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 really has so many weird moving parts and bits to it, and it changes shape throughout the movie too, depending on stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. So Miyazaki's architectural inspiration this time came from trips to uh, I'm gonna butcher these names. Get ready, uh, Colmar and Rick Weir in Alsace, France. I fucked it up so bad. I don't know how to say things. I am an ignorant white boy. I am sorry. Deal with it, I guess. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. As well as from artwork of Albert Robita, which I looked up and like, yeah, it's it's the chaotic like stacks of crap architecture that like, it's cool looking though, you know. Oh, well, it's great. And and that obviously inspired Howl's Castle. Uh, like any adaptation, there's several changes involved. Uh, Calcifer was more of a demonic figure in the book. Hal's castle had the more conventional design, like I mentioned. Characters and subplots were cut out. I, I guess uh, Sophie had uh, siblings that also had subplots going on. Uh, I think any life she had before Howl is simplified in the movie by just having like her mom show up for like a minute 
And then we forget mm-hmm. that she exists for the rest of the movie. Uh, but the biggest change was the expansion of elements of war. Now, while that's indeed present in the novel, the war is really only mentioned in passing. And it's not like how the movie presents it, which is pretty front and center. Um, I think it, I think it kind of gets lost in the weeds with the other elements of the plot, but like clearly Miyazaki had some shit he wanted to get off his chest here. And this isn't just like a thought. This is the reality. Cause like, um, this focus on anti-war themes stems from Miyazaki's real world opinions Uh, Not just on pacifism in general, but specifically on the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So, Miyazaki wins the American Academy Award for Best Animated Feature for Spirited Away. Uh, Deservedly so. That's like, I mean, usually every time a Miyazaki movie gets nominated, it should probably win. Although I do have a joke about that in Howell's case that I'll say. (laughs) Howl's Moving Castle was nominated for an Academy Award and lost. Uh, you want to hazard a guess as to what it lost to? No, it would have to be a Pixar film. Nope. <laughs> it was Wallace and Gromit and the Curse of the Were-Rabbit. And oh, you know, hell yeah, dude. You know what? Better that's, movie. That's a better movie. <laughs> yep, it is. I never, thought is. I, would, I never thought I would say that's technically better than a Miyazaki movie, but you know what? They didn't fuck up that time. They fucked up when mm-hmm. they said Frozen was better than The Wind Rises, though. They majorly fucked up when they did that. That's I'll tell you fucking that much. stupid, dude. <laughs> God. But I, Wallace and Gromit's some fun. I like Wallace and Gromit a lot. I, I'm not going to complain about that one. But anyway, so... Miyazaki wins Best Animated Feature for Spirited Away, but he has some mixed feelings and hesitations about accepting the award due to America's recent actions. He's really kind of, like, conflicted on this. So he decides to intentionally make his next film one that would explore themes of pacifism. Uh, to, Mm -hmm. To put it another way, he decided to make a film that he felt would be poorly received by the United States audience. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think not because of the anti-war themes, but, like, I, I don't know if, if he gets kind of, like, I don't know. I, I It's not poorly received. It's well-received, but yeah. I definitely see that general... Eh, feeling from some critics like uh roger ebert gave it two and a half stars out of four and stated that like in terms of like his other work it's a disappointment a massive disappointment even i think he said uh because ebert is someone who championed the man's works that miyazaki's and was a, a big part and probably played some role in introducing him to American audiences like you know it was it was nice of him to hype the man up I'm sure there was at least a couple people that saw his great reviews and decided to watch Miyazaki movies when otherwise they probably would have never done so mm-hmm. so yeah even he was like Howell isn't that good <laughs> but I don't think it's because of the anti-war themes mm-hmm. I agree with Miyazaki uh, in that 
that Iraq war was pretty fucking whack, yo. And uh, we shouldn't have did that. America sucks. True. Bush era America really sucked. But I do understand his uh, trepidation and like ambivalence towards America in that era because culturally speaking, we were still riding the patriotic wave after 9-11. And, Very much so, and, yes. and we're being kind of openly racist <sighs> about brown people and kind of just like... I can understand the vibe of like, you know, there was way too many people who were like, yeah, Iraq, we'll put a boot in your ass. Saddam, fuck you. And, and like, just go to war. And I can understand him being like, ugh, when he sees all that. But I, I don't know. It didn't mean it was how everybody felt. It never right. is. Um, in 2013... When asked which of his films was his favorite, Miyazaki actually stated Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, His quote about it was, I wanted to convey the message that life is worth living, and I don't think that's changed. So, I don't know. He definitely feels strongly about this movie and it it has some personal message to him because of its anti-war elements but I genuinely think that these aspects are better explored in The Wind Rises for fucking sure they might even be better explored by Porco Rosso which also didn't explore them that well but it at least like had more agency on the plot this is why I'm kind of confused about the like hand-waving away of the war at the end of the movie, because if Miyazaki wanted to make, like, some grand statement on how the Iraq war sucks, um, making it so that the war goes away really easily is kind of... I don't know, I think naive. Like, I, I don't know, like... The war never gets handled that cleanly, like, I realize this is a fantasy kids movie, but, like, when he openly admits that, like, his feelings on the Iraq war led to him having these pacifistic messages and in, in increasing the amount of war stuff in the plot of Howl's Moving Castle, I, I just kind of have to wonder why the inevitable, like, the, like the, the conclusion of that aspect of the story is kind of just like, well, we'll stop bombing people because the prince is back. Right. And like we never fucking... really deal with any, like, real losses or real, like, anything from the war aspects of the movie. It's kind of just, like, background. Yeah, just, like, not well established. And mainly because it's just used as a vehicle. Yeah. And not, like, <clears throat> displayed with any real purpose. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think it's just a huge fucking weirdo move. <laughs> I I'm agree. I'm being honest. Yeah. Like, I understand you don't want to get, like, too dark with it, but, like, you're, you're showing a part in this movie where people's houses are getting bombed and shit. I know, like, pretty much everybody evacuated the town, and they said that prior. 
Yeah. But, like, dude. They didn't evacuate the towns in fucking Fallujah. It's just a fucking like, backdrop, You know, dude. like, I like, don't know. Like, that that just being used as a backdrop. like, uh, great anti-war message, Hayao Miyazaki. You did a good job. Uh, yeah, like, you can't just, like, have... You gotta say something with it, at least. This is great. Like, war, this war's is, bad. This is well, who about yeah. That's just it's just war's bad, and like I yeah, I think a lot of people would agree. But, yeah, so Princess Mononoke tells the same message, except it's way a more deeply more complex. Nuance. Yeah, yes, a lot it's more deeply complex and interesting because because sometimes people do go to war for a reason, and it and shows atrocities think, too. Like it doesn't shy right. away from showing you the violent side of the war. Right, and then, but like, it's and p- the people that go to that war sometimes think it's a good reason, and it's not like they're inherently bad people for it. That's the one. That's like the big message of Princess Mononoke. These and things like, are complicated. Yeah. Right, and then like, and then he just hand waves all that away in this movie. It's not at all complicated. In fact, it doesn't actually matter. That and just like, the wind rises are much more successful at outlining his feelings well, the, on war and pacifism. For mm-hmm. sure, than Howl's Moving Castle. Like it was weird to me that like it, it was such a big part of this movie to him when, and and that he felt as strongly about it as he did, and enough to say it's his favorite movie when that theme has been more thoroughly explored by him yeah. before and since. So I don't, I don't it's know. It's done better. He just doesn't do it as good in this film. And that's just kind of like overall, my overall feeling of it, right? Everything that he does in this film isn't as good as stuff he's done in previous things. Yeah, just, that's just, that's just about the size of it. It's it's no. not it's not a disaster. It's not no. like you know. It's not like oops, uh, I made Godfather three. Like I, I don't know. Like it's not. Yeah. Like, it's not bad. There's lots of things I like about it. Yep, it's just not as good. I think it's a 7 out of 10 from a guy who usually makes 10 out of 10s. I don't know. Yep, that's about where I land on it, man. Yeah. That's the long and short of it. If you want to see an exploration of the themes that are presented in this movie, you can watch other Hayao Miyazaki works yeah. and get a better I film. Like I would definitely is- say you shouldn't start with this one if you want to get into Miyazaki. Like, you know... This is like, you know, if you want to watch all of them, yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. It's whatever. You want a, you want a better anti-war message that has, like, a cool-looking castle in it? Go watch Castle in the Sky. Yeah, that too. Anti-war <laughs> is in, like, all of his movies to a degree, yeah. you know. Well, mostly. <laughs> um, so... Let's talk about a better that. developed character love story. You could watch uh, Castle in the Sky. That's, that's, that's also a really good true. movie too. Because yeah. those characters actually have a really well, like, uh, overall developing relationship as the film goes on, and it makes sense that they fall in love. That's sure. pretty cool. I think that's that's true. <laughs> Kiki's has that too. Uh, sure does. And and it's and that's a side character of that movie. Like the the main like the the love story isn't the main focus of Kiki. Right. Um, it's a really secondary focus. All right, let's talk about this voice cast. Um, yep. So Sophie, when she's young, is played by Emily Mortimer, but Sophie, when she's old, is played by Gene Simmons. Uh, Emily Mortimer is, like, uh, in the newsroom, and uh, everyone's favorite animated film, Cars 2. Hell yeah, dude. 
<laughs> which is oh, yeah. Pixar's Howl's Moving Castle. Although yep. it is uh, much worse than a 7 out of 10. Maybe. I don't know. You know I, I don't remember anything about Cars 2. Not a damn thing. I swear to God I've watched it. I just don't remember anything. I think I just deleted it from my brain. Which, no big loss. I just, I don't remember anything. I don't know. I don't, I'm not interested in rewatching it. And then Gene Simmons is, uh, obviously, as you would have expected, like an older actress, but she was in a lot of classics. Uh, the 1948 Hamlet, 1955 Guys and Dolls. Uh, she does a great job as old Sophie. Definitely, mm-hmm. like, my favorite like performance in this movie, I think. Absolutely. And then, of course, we have Christian Bale as Hal. And uh, just as a thing that made me laugh, I always, like, list uh, things that an actor has been in so that I remember who they are. Or I like I like mentioning things they've been in for the podcast because it's fun. I, we don't have to do that with Christian Bale. But I pose to you, Jusby, to guess the three movies I listed for Christian Bale. All right. You got um you got a uh, what is it the one movie where you stick Shady? I didn't list that one. Vice. Aww. He's good in that though. Yeah. Man becomes Dick Cheney. It's probably probably Literally dangerous to him. do that, but he did. Um you give him checking dubs. Yeah, I put American Psycho in there. Yeah. Okay, good, good. That's still one of his <laughs> most famous roles, for sure. It's still one of his best to this day. This is a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, did you do his Terminator role? <laughs> yeah, I did. That yeah, was the did. joke I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I should have put not even Terminator Salvation, but like that 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 found footage from Terminator yeah. Salvation where he yells at a guy. <laughs> That's yeah, one of his one of his best performances, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, True. good for you. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so entertaining to listen to. Alright, so um <laughs> The Witch of the Waste uh was voiced by Lauren Bacall, who is also a classic film actress she was in the big sleep the shootest um oh i didn't even really say how i felt about the witch of the waste um i miyazaki does this thing with villains where they're never really quite a villain and they get like redeeming qualities and usually i'm okay with it Usually does that really I, does that really actually happen in this movie though because I don't think it does. No, <laughs> like it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. She's she's the main contention point at the, at the fucking climax. She turns Sophie old, which is a very traumatic and fucked up thing to do to someone. Not only that, but she doesn't tell her how to fix it. Uh, the only way to fix it is seemingly to fall in love with somebody. So it's a good thing she fell in love with Howell. If her and Howell break up, does she become old again? Like, how does the curse work? I hope so. That'd be funny. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Why can't Howell just remove the curse? I thought that's what it was leading to. I thought she was mm-hmm. going to see Howell 
to get the curse removed. And then she just like started working for, for him and then fell in love with him. I don't or know. Or it was like, you have to, you have to clean my house and then I will help you or whatever. Yeah. Or something. I thought there was going to be something, you know, something that would mirror like bell being locked in, in the beast castle. You know what I mean? Like, and then eventually they get past it and actually love each other. That makes sense to me. Right. But no, nah, not really. But yeah, like never has there ever been a, a villain in a Miyazaki film that deserved less of a uh, secondary, like actually they're not that bad arc than the Witch of the Waste. Yeah. She's a disgusting bitch <laughs> who who ruins this woman's life, maybe irreparably. Like if if she didn't fall in love with Hal, she'd still be old. Uh, right. And I I don't know. Like she gets her powers stripped from her and becomes an old woman herself by Madame Solomon, which is punishment. But like then she just like stays with the rest of the cast for the rest of the movie, and even becomes a problem later when she tries to steal like the heart of the castle, which is like I guess in Calcifer, but is also Hal's heart. However that works, I don't really. No, it's not explained well. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know. It's kind of just, like, they kind of just have, like, a whatever relationship. Like, Sophie should hate her a lot, but, like, she, like, puts her to bed. Like, it's her grandma. It's like, good night, witch of the fucking waste to ruin my life. Good night. I, I don't know. Weird. Throw her out of the castle. Hopefully from the top floor so that she squishes real good when she lands real hard on the ground. Because that character sucks. <laughs> like, it's like if, like, Mark Hamill from Castle in the Sky got to live and then they just hung out with him. That doesn't make any sense, right? She's presented mm-hmm. as so unlikable and so shitty like maybe more than most Miyazaki villains <laughs> right uh, anyway uh, we also got Billy Crystal as Calcifer of course the man the myth the legend Mike Wazowski is here uh, he does a great job he's my favorite part of, of maybe the movie as a whole Mm-hmm. He's just entertaining. Josh Hutcherson is Markle, which I didn't realize because this is him as a much younger person than than I'm used to. But uh, you know, he's he's Hunger Games kid. You remember? Remember the Hunger Games? Justin yep. forgot. Oh, okay, no, I was just wondering if sure you remembered. Did. All right. Blythe Danner is Madame Solomon. Uh, I recognize her from Meet the Parents. She's uh, the not Robert De Niro parent. Uh, <laughs> she also has a big role in Will and Grace, I guess. Uh, so Turniphead was voiced by... Well, I mean, he wasn't voiced by anyone until he was Prince Justin. So I guess Prince Justin is voiced by Crispin Freeman, which... Uh, 
is a name that I recognized, and then I realized it's because he is a anime dub voice actor man who's in a lot of things. He's Keon in Harui. He's also Itachi in Naruto. Uh, so he gets <laughs> to show up for like a second. Um, here's my favorite one. Heen the dog who just coughs and makes little noises was voiced mm-hmm. by D. Bradley Baker in Uncredited, by the way. D. Bradley Baker is a great voice actor who voices all of the clones in Star Wars The Clone Wars. That's great. Um, and for some reason here, he just makes some cough noises. <laughs> he came in for an afternoon, uncredited. Uh, he shows up everywhere. D. Bradley Baker is, like, in everything. Uh, he was Daffy and Taz and Space Jam. Don't know if he'll reprise his role in Space Jam, uh, Ready Player Two, or whatever the fuck the name of that movie is. Uh, he's also Beautiful Joe. If you remember Beautiful Joe. Uh, anyway. Yeah, Beautiful Joe's great. It is. It's cool. I don't, I don't think they'll ever make another one. Oh, well. So against its budget of $24 million, Howl's Moving Castle grossed $236 million worldwide, one of the most successful films of all time in Japan. At the time, it became the third highest-grossing film behind Titanic and Spirited Away. Today, it remains in the top ten, at the number eight spot, right behind Princess Mononoke. Uh, Miyazaki has... Three films in that top ten still. Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and Howl's Moving Castle. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe when his new movie gets released, he can reclaim that number one spot. But he's not really invested in it because he's too busy picking up trash, as we discussed last week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> film still did extremely well with critics. 87% score on Rotten Tomatoes. But that is lower than the others, I think. Except maybe the Lupin movie, but I disagree. Um, And I already talked about Roger Ebert. And I guess we don't have a whole lot else to say. I I don't know. How about you? That's that's about all I got, man. This this film is uh, beautiful to look at. But if you think for about, I don't know, two seconds about the plot, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, And I think that... uh, it is, by and large, Miyazaki's worst work we've watched so far. I think it'll probably stay there. I've heard negative things about Ponyo, but I don't know. I I at least want to see it. I'm interested in seeing what's up with that movie. Uh, we only got two left. We got Ponyo, and then the wind rises. Fuck yeah, dude. I'm super excited yep. to watch Wind Rises. Dude, I'm going to go off. <laughs> I, I bet. <laughs> I know you're passionate about that movie being his best. Yep, I'm very passionate about, very passionate about that being the greatest animated movie of all time. So, I'm going to go hard. I don't know, man. It's no Cars 2. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, dog. My I'm sorry, I forgot about Cars 2. To that question... Might be into the Spider-Verse. I'm being dead serious. That movie kicks fucking ass. 
The movie's great. I, um, I adore it. It's up um, there for me. I think it's artistically really, really cool. Um, I just, I don't know. I'd I like a... At least of the current century we're in. I'll give you that yeah. one. Um, Mononoke up there as well for me. If we're talking about yeah. purely animated movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you might have a hard amazing. time convincing me that Wind Rises is better than Mononoke. You might not. I don't know. It depends on what I feel like when I watch the Wind Rises again. I feel like having the context will always work along with it's going to help you. It's kind of a culmination yeah, of but, his entire career. Yeah, which is but, weird that he's making another film. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but Mononoke has like big wolves in it. Yeah. So it's better. Great. I'm, I'm happy for you, kid. <laughs> Mononoke has that scene where he shoots the arrow and the dude's arms come off of his body. And then he yeah, just, dude. like, stares at him for half a second. He's like, what the fuck? Like, the dude with his arms missing. So, yeah. clearly it is a better film than The Wind Rises, Justin, idiot. Not gonna lie, dude. That, that, that pop-off every time that happens it's, in that movie. That's a real good part. <laughs> Nothing in Howl's Moving Castle made me pop-off. No. So... <laughs> That's just where it is. So yeah, next week's Ponyo. Um, have you seen Ponyo? Film. I have seen Ponyo a couple of times. Do you think it would be... You, you probably think it'd be low tier, or do you think it would be at least better yeah, than Howl? Be, it might... I'm going gonna, I'm, I mean, I'm gonna to watch it again, so we'll, we'll see where I land on it. But I think... If, if like With what I remember of it, I'd probably sandwich it right between Porco and Howl's. Okay, um, okay. We'll see, though. Actually, you might like it better than Porco again. But, it, like, uh, it is, unlike the rest of Miyazaki's films, even Totoro, it is a lot more of a children's film. And you'll see what I mean when you watch it. I definitely got that vibe from when it was coming out and the trailers for it and yeah. everything. It um, is like, that is absolutely what it is. I'm fine with that. There's nothing wrong with a children's film. But if I look up notes about it and it's like Miyazaki made this movie to protest... The invasion of Iraq. I'm gonna be like, are you are you sure? <laughs> I think it's actually a bad thing. I think there's actually a small message in that film about the uh, about the fishing industry in Japan, which is really interesting. Okay. Yeah. That works, I guess. That would make yeah, sense. Cool. And there's a big problem, especially with whaling in Japan. Any famous people in that dub? Oh yeah. It's it's a it's a Hayao Miyazaki Disney dub. There's all kinds of famous people in it. I'm sure. Do you remember any? <laughs> I don't offhand. Oh okay. It's been a while since I've watched it. I don't know. When did that come out? Like, I don't know. Probably like '08 or something like that. I'm trying to yeah, think, think was, like who would a, be in it based on the time period. It's like '08 or '09. I don't know. <sighs> I don't know. I'm not, yeah, we'll talk about it next week. I don't know. I don't know any of the cast. I just want to throw a name out there and see if I'm right. Okay. Uh, do it. Here, here, here. We'll, we'll, we'll do this. Hold on. Uh-huh. Give me give me one second here, okay? I'm going to pull up the Wikipedia page for Ponyo. Okay. Okay. We'll go to the voice cast section, right? Uh, all right. Here we go. Okay. Go ahead and just hit me with one. You're not going to get a single one. I'm not. Nope. Fuck. There's some great ones in here. Oh my god. Yeah, there are some amazing ones in here. That's gonna you're gonna see them. You're gonna be like, what? Okay. Well, what if I, I forgot? What if I try to be like, um, really vague? Go ahead, hit me with one. Uh, ah, fuck. I don't know. I'm gonna just try. 
2000 what year did that movie come out um 2008 you were right okay Daniel Craig, new Bond, maybe, maybe Daniel Craig. Not quite, but there is an action movie star in this film. Matt it Damon. It's pretty, pretty great. <laughs> yes. Wait, really? Yes. No way. That was my second <laughs> yes. choice because I was thinking Matt like Bourne Damon Identity. Is in this movie. Ah, oh, you son of a bitch! I <laughs> so knew I could figure is, it out. So is Liam Neeson. Oh, fuck. Well, hopefully he doesn't so say is. anything about black people in that movie. So is. And this is what, what I'll close out with. Uh-huh. So is Betty White. Bruh. <laughs> the, the voice cast is pretty fucking good. They have a good time with this Matt one. Damon, Liam Neeson, and Betty White. Yep. And Kate Blanchett's also in this movie. Oh, cool. All right. That's all right. Yeah. I'm surprised that Matt Damon was right. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> that was the one I was hoping you'd guess. I was. I mean, in I don't 2008, know. You could definitely like, see. Damon. You could definitely see actor trends show up, like Bales and Howells, because he was popular for Batman at the time. Uh, and and you could kind of see that happen throughout this, like you know. Uh, I don't I don't know when the dub for Porco came out, but like yeah, like. Uh, fucking Michael Keaton makes sense for that era, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, Matt Damon just sounded like, right for late two thousands because of the Born Identity yeah. and shit. I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Oh. All right. Next week, Ponyo. We watch have a good time. All Maybe right. You all have you have a good week. Yeah. Get vaccinated. I'm doing it. Yeah. Today. Yeah. Go do it. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. Let's get Congrats. it. Let's get this bread. And by bread, I mean needle in my arm, question mark. Hell yeah. All right. Okay, bye. Bye.